So reading is taken from Genesis chapter 50, but actually starting with the last verse of chapter 49. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. 
Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May I invite you to pray with me. Let's sit and pray together. Master, speak. Your servant is listening. Gracious God, by your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts and our lives, to our minds and our discipleship. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do please keep Genesis 15 in front of you. We're going to be looking at that fairly closely in a moment. I want to ask a question of you. Is God in charge of everything? Everything. Does that make him the author of evil? Or at least responsible for it? Are we then automata, puppets on a string? Are we responsible? Do we have any choice? Now, of course, some of these Christians, while very much focused in our minds this evening, the Christian faith, they're not restricted to the Christian faith at all. Is, if I'm an atheist, is what I think is choice, in fact, an illusion? Am I the product of my DNA, my hormones, my circumstances, my upbringing, forces in the universe? How can I then be held responsible? This, of course, takes us deep into questions, theological questions, questions about the nature of God, exegetical questions, questions about the Bible, what it actually says, philosophical questions, and moral ones. I can think of at least two dangers at the start. You may think of more. First of all, the danger of being superficial. That is, um, you just barely scratch the surface. And I think I probably want to answer guilty. I'll leave you to judge that at the end. This world obviously won't be complete, but the aim at least will be trying to tackle some of the questions. But there's another danger... And I suppose it's that it somehow seemed to be impersonal to talk about these kinds of questions. But these questions are not theoretical, or at least merely theoretical. They're profoundly personal. Suffering, evil, affects people. 
either as perpetrators or as victims. I don't know what you do when you wake up in the morning, but I tend to quite often look at the BBC News on a smartphone or whatever. And I just noticed this morning the headlines, they were coming in in real time about uh, the bomb in uh, Istanbul by the Besiktas Stadium and, of course, in Cairo, to say nothing of the, of, um, the natural disaster in Nigeria. So there's a danger of appearing glib or trite in a shortish look. And I, I first I put my hand up and say, probably, maybe, I hope, not guilty, but try not to be guilty of that. But one way that's particularly struck me this week is, I don't know if you've come across a woman called Helen Rosevere. Anyone come across her? A few nods, a few hands, a few arms in the air. Because this week has seen the death of the remarkable medical missionary, Helen Rosevere. Uh, in the then Congo in 1964, rebel forces took her prisoner. She remained a prisoner for five months. She suffered beatings. She was raped more than once. She left the Congo, headed back to England. Two years later, she returned to the Congo in 1966 to assist in the rebuilding of that nation. She helped establish a new medical school and hospital. The hospitals that she had built had been destroyed in the uprising, and she served there until 1973. Why, why her? Well, partly because she's died this week, partly because she's a remarkable Christian figure, and partly because Bridget, my wife's maiden name, is Rosevere. This is a family connection. So what are we going to do? Uh, there are all kinds of questions that our passage raises for us. And that central verse, verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. One of the things I love about things like Google Maps or Google Earth, you ever use those, is you can go from the 10,000 metres up and zoom right down, right down, right down, and to, you can see your house or your car or in our home, the guinea pig hutch at home. So what we're going to do is first of all start off at 10,000, then drop to 3,000, then to 500, and then to have a street view before we then move up away from that with, I suppose, a drone's eye view, if that makes sense. See where we're going? So we'll start with 10,000 metres. This is kind of Genesis from 10,000. The high level, versus chapters 1 to 50. So, of course, it begins with the creation of the world in chapter 1. Now, from chapter 2 right through to the end of chapter 50, it's entirely structured by, a, by sections, each of which is introduced by a phrase that goes something like this. This is the family history of. These are the generations of. So they're kind of sections that are structured like that. And you start in that first family history, in Genesis 2 and 3, with humanity's rebellion, God's judgment, and then it continues in this downward spiral to chapter 11. And then we find at the beginning of Genesis 12, God makes promises to Abraham. Do you remember those? He makes promises 
of a land that I'm going to give you, says God. Promises, you're going to be a great people, a great nation, number two. Number three, I'm going to bless you, that sense of relationship, God being with his people, number three. Number four, related to that, through you all nations are going to find blessing. Those four promises of a land, of being a great nation, of God being with them or blessing them, and then the nation is going to find blessing. And then you find woven through the rest of these Genesis 12 through 50, these promises, and how is it going against those promises? Did you know, have you noticed that whenever you've read Genesis? You may just recall, actually, if you look down at the end of our Genesis chapter 50, there's a little echo of it in verse 24. I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So though we get three people really in view, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of course Joseph, it's really about the outworking of God's promises. And this is the really important thing to note about it. God makes promises to an individual for the sake of the whole world. He chooses an individual, Abraham and his offspring, to be the vehicle through which his creation purposes are going to be carried forwards. And so he all kinds of twists and turns on the way. As Genesis ends, there's lots of progress, as we'll see, but there's a long way to go. That's kind of 10,000 meters. We then head down to 3,000 meters, the last of these family histories. That's chapter 37 through to chapter 50. If you were going to call it, this is the family history of, what title would you give it? Family history of? What would you give it? It's interestingly, it's of Jacob, not of Joseph. Though Joseph is often one of the key players, but Jacob is in a some sense the key player over and above all of this, which is why we had the beginning of the chapter read. We saw the big deal of his Jacob's death. And again, God's purposes are carried forward, these promises that he's made, but in the midst of this, are all kinds of soap-like themes. I think a number of the sermons over the last weeks have picked up on some of the soap opera-type themes that we've got. I've jotted down some of them. You may think of others. Family feuding, favoritism, attempted murder, lying, deception, incest, near adultery, injustice, power, its use and abuse, executions, hunger, famine, people migration, slavery, revenge, love, separation, reuniting, forgiveness, reconciliation, trust, tenderness, death, mourning. It's a pretty good expression of the entire mess of human life, is it not? You get that kind of feel. It's pretty messy. Is that fair? But there's a sense in which the end meets the beginning because Joseph, the one whom the brothers had tried to kill, the one who was Jacob's favorite, his father's favorite, is now in charge. But remember our 10,000, we're only at 3,000. Remember the 10,000 meters view we had? Over and over throughout, we saw that God was with Joseph. As he promised, 
That was back to Abraham. He promised he's going to be with the relationship. The family has grown from just being a wandering nomad, Abraham, childless for a fair amount of time, through to 70, who then have gone down into Egypt. The Egyptians, this other nation, has experienced something of God's blessing, have you noticed? So as Joseph is in charge... All the famine situations are sorted out. God is in charge and the nations are blessed. So some of these promises that God made back in Genesis 12 for the sake of humanity as a whole are now being worked out. But but they're being worked out over and against the mess and the muck that we saw of all those themes. And then we have our third level. We're zooming down from 10,000 to 3,000 or so. We now come to 500 metres to the beginning of this chapter, verses 1 to 14. This is the account, of course, of the burial of Jacob, the patriarch. So we put our antennae on. We think we remembered our big view, bird's eye view. We come close. Various things our antennae are supposed to be attuned to. Here's one. This is a vivid reminder of the death that has blighted humanity since the start of Genesis. What an elaborate mourning we get. Second little observation is the death of Jacob, which brings to a close from chapters 37 and verse 2. This is the family history of Jacob. Then we get, as we, uh, Dan so helpfully reminded us last week, you get a picture in miniature of the rescue of Israel as God's people from Egypt into the promised land. Because Jacob, though he's dead, is embalmed and taken up into the promised land. But that's a reminder also at the same time that they're in the wrong place. Did you notice what happened after, they, after he's finished burying him, verse 14, after burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. Well, that's kind of a journey in the wrong direction because they're supposed to be in the promised land, the land that been, Jacob's been buried in. So that's where they're going to be. That's the land promised. And they're heading in the opposite direction. So at the best, it's the end of a chapter, the end of Genesis, not the end of the story. We're also going to see, we also saw in um, the beginning of chapter 50, how what's true of Jacob, prepared to being taken from Egypt into the promised land and buried there, is what's going to happen to Joseph. There's a picture in miniature of like father, like son. But perhaps the most important thing to note about what's been happening in this 300-meter view is this. There's a certain instability in the family dynamics. I want you to notice, look at verse 12, will you, with me. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. Verse 13, they carried him. And later on, they buried him in the cave. Here are all the 12 sons acting together. Have you noticed? They're all acting. They, the 12, they all act together for the sake of Jacob. 
But look what happens in verse 14. The they of a united family group begin to, the signs of fracture begin to appear. Verse 14, after burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers. So Joseph being separated out from his brothers. So briefly, they'd been united in the father's death, and now they're being separated. The key relationship is changing, which then takes us to the street view. We're now going to, you know, you press the little orange, little orange man, then he goes onto the street and you can walk around. We're going to have a little look, meander through this story and see what happens in verses 15 through 21 before heading up out again. So verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Bridget, my wife, works with uh, Carers Oxfordshire, which is a branch of Age UK, and she has observed something. What happens when elderly people often be the vehicle of unity in the family that they then die and suddenly the uneasy peace of children or grand can break open and hostility often over the will can ensue it's amazing how the death of the senior family member or the parent can then lead to chaos underneath And that's their fear. They think, Joseph was only nice to us, which they had been nice, because Jacob was around. And now Jacob, our father's dead, we're really in for the high jump. So the thought crosses their minds. Do you notice, what if Joseph holds a grudge? Again, if you're antennae attuned in Genesis... That's what happened with Esau and Jacob. Same word, only occurs rarely, six times in the Old Testament, three times in Genesis. That's what happened with, do you remember when Jacob stole Esau's birthright? Esau went ballistic, but it was kind of all settled until Isaac died, and then there was the fear of the grudge. So they're terrified. But notice what they recognize as well. Pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him. They've never actually put it quite like that until this moment. When they experience bad things happening to them, they assume they've done something wrong. But here you're getting a window into their psychology. They're thinking to themselves, Do you know what? I think we made a mess of that. The first time the acknowledgement on their lips. And so we find verse 16. So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father, don't you just love that? Not our father. They're not trying to play on family brotherly loyalty here. Your father, you do you remember? Because you're a good son to your father. Your father 
left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Not only do they talk about him as your father, do you notice something else that's curious at the beginning of that verse? Do you notice? They sent word to Joseph. They could have kind of gone round next door or whatever, but they sent word. You can see something about their nervousness here, can't you? They're trying to put it hard. But were they telling the truth? Do you think they were telling the truth? Did Jacob actually say that to them? Perhaps I should do a straw poll. Who thinks they were telling the truth? Who thinks they were telling the truth? Did Jacob actually... Who thinks they were not telling the truth? Interesting. Overwhelming. You're fired. (laughs) We're not told whether they were telling the truth or not, interestingly. I just wonder... I don't know the answer to this, but I just wonder... You may have noticed earlier in the chapter... Joseph did the same thing with Pharaoh... He played on his dead father's words. Did you notice that? In verse uh, 4, when the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, notice again using an intermediary, if I found favour in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. So perhaps we're meant to draw the same conclusion. Were they both equally savvy or equally truth-telling? But there's something about a parallel between them. So there's a certain plausibility than being truth-telling. I'm not sure I'd have quite as strong a red liar. as. But though it's on Jacob's lips, there's no doubt what their viewpoint is. Unfortunately, in English, we, ha- we don't have many, many words for sin, do we? If you're going to think of words sin, what other words could we use? Sin, transgression, Okay, we're getting some. Trespass, crime, wickedness, rebellion. We could have used them. Interestingly enough, it's quite hard to translate them here. This is the only time in the Bible that these three different words are used for transgression or sin. One is the word that means kind of rebellion or transgression. One of them is a kind of impurity word, a kind of missing the mark. And one of them is evil. It's the only time in the Old Testament these three words occur together in this verse. So whether they're telling the truth or not, you're, you're left in no doubt that they are saying guilty is charged. There's no doubt whatsoever about that. And then, because they're shrewd cookies as well, do you notice what they do? They kind of mirror what their dad had supposed to have said to them and when they re- re- relay the words... So your father left these instructions, I ask you to forgive, and then they continue in verse uh, 17, now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father, again making that connection. So here is a frank confession. No hiding of the sin, no pretending it didn't matter, or it wasn't evil. It was thoroughly so. No hiding, no downplaying, no justifying, no excusing, no pretending, no redefining. It 
was wrong. Crystal clear. And then Joseph, verse 17. We're still carrying our little uh, street view look. Do you notice what he does? Verse 17. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Actually, quite a number of times where Joseph's been weeping, you may have noticed throughout the story, the account here. One commentator, I think, puts it brilliantly. I love it. You may think of other reasons. This is what he wrote. He weeps because they think they need a mediator. You know, they sent an intermediary to come to him. Because they're afraid of him. Because they ascribe to him the attitude of of being grudging, fearing they've got a grudge. Because he hears his father's voice being relayed. Because he recalls his youth persecuted by their hate. And because it's they who remind him of this through their submissiveness. So all these factors, we don't know why he weeps, but there could be any number of reasons. But he's, and then what happens, verse 18. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Does that ring any bells for anyone? Sounds rather similar to the beginning of the dreams, doesn't it? Falling down before Joseph, serving and so on. But what's intriguing is we never know back in those dreams whether they are going to end up fully being slaves or whether that was a momentary instance of them bowing down. So we're waiting the answer. Verse 19 to 21. Don't be afraid, says Joseph. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. We've actually met very similar words back in chapter 45. The big difference now is that Jacob is dead. Am I in the place of God? It's not, says Joseph, it's not my job to sort out vengeance. I don't know what favourite film you've got, but my observation of many of the films and the plot lines, not that I'm a massive film watcher, but much of the time it's about someone getting even with someone for something they've done. Is that a reasonable summary of a bunch of films? And Joseph says, no, that's not the way. Am I in the place of God? And it might be. I suspect it will be someone here will be facing even this evening the temptation to get even with someone else. This is the response we all need to have. Am I in the place of God? It's God's business. It's not that justice doesn't matter, but it's God's business and not mine. And then we see, did you notice, the for the saving, what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Not just Israel, not just Jewish lives or the family's lives, but Egyptian lives too. The blessing that's going out to the nations, our 10,000 metres view. But you, you say, come on, James, now get to it. 
We have lots of, we've had our street view, but we haven't actually got to the nub question, have we? So here it is. It's those central words that are most remarkable. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. In fact, it's even starker than that. It says, I say literally, you intended evil for me, but God intended it, that is the evil, for good. You intended evil for me, but God intended it for good. What do we make of that? There's no doubt that it's incredibly challenging. But what's striking is here, this is simply an assertion. There's no anatomy of it. There's no mechanism that's describing how this works. It's just an assertion. Well, we can say some things. I hope you've picked up because we want to look closely at it. Some of the things that I hope we'll all agree with because you've been looking closely at the text. First of all, evil is evil. We're left in no doubt that the brothers' actions have been evil. They've said it, the narrator says it, we're left in no doubt whatsoever. Is that fair? You with me? Think that's a fair call? I mean, using three words for it, it never found elsewhere altogether in one verse to make that point, we know it. Second thing, we're making sense of clearly the case. People are responsible. There is no hint that the brothers are somehow not responsible for their actions. Is that fair? And yet, here it is. God's sovereign over it. God planned it. That is that evil for good. He intended it. It's not that somehow the moral value of the action was changed, but God's intention in using it at a different level, if you like, is seen. But there's no hint that we can say that somehow God is evil in doing this. So that's our street view. Let's try and go up in the drone. I've got five observations from the drone, Okay. You still with me? Just. Good. Number one. This is a biblical viewpoint. So you might be tempted to think, this is just the pious musings of Joseph. We can't generalise from here. It was something that he believed. Good luck to him. He was a person of faith, maybe a bit naive. But we can't move out from here and draw wider conclusions. It's just for those with the eyes of faith who are able to see it. One way of looking at it. I don't think that'll do. Two reasons. Partly, and I'm going to have, this is why we looked at our 10,000 and 3,000 metres and so on, the whole account of Genesis has set it up like this. God has been working in and through, fulfilling his promises in and through the mess. There's not an isolated incident. The entire account, God has made these promises and we've seen the human wickedness that's gone throughout. 
God is found in the details, like, for example, the details from the dreams. Second, related to that, reason why I think it's a biblical point, is this is what's found throughout the rest of Scripture. Let me, uh, got Proverbs 16.9, in their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Proverbs 19.21, many of the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. So this is the uniform testimony of Scripture. It's biblical. That's our first drone observation. The second one, you may think of better titles than this, and I'd love to hear them afterwards, but my second one is, it's coherent. I care what I mean by that. So I think it's really puzzling, and I've got many puzzles and personal questions, but I think it makes sense. So let me come at it from a slightly different angle. This is sort of little sub points, but getting the same point, okay? The existence of evil as evil shows that there is a God. You might say, people would say, actually, the opposite's the case, but in fact, no, the existence of evil as evil shows that there is a God. How so? Well, as C.S. Lewis saw so clearly, take away God and we're left with no way of determining whether something could be good or evil, just or unjust. Things just are. There is no ought. And if it's just my view, or the view of the majority that something is evil or unjust... It's got no ultimate validity to speak to the question of whether God exists or not. You can't say anything is evil in that sense. And Dawkins himself makes that point. But the point is, surely we do recognise things ultimately as evil. Do we not? We do recognise certain things like that. So we're then moving on from that. So where did evil come from? Two answers have been chiefly proposed, and strikingly, you find them both at the start of Genesis. The first one is what one might call monism. That is, evil came from God. Both evil and good originate from the one God. That's Adam's line, you may remember. The woman that you put here with me, that was all your fault, God. If there's a blunder here, you caused it. But the Bible insists that God is not the author of evil. He's utterly opposed to it. The actions of the brothers really were evil, wicked, wrong. So you can't say monism is right. So you then say, well, okay, let's try another option. Let's try dualism. That there's a kind of cosmic battle between God and the Satan. It's touch and go who's going to win. Dualism sets up two equal and opposite powers in the universe. All the good things, well, that's God's business. All the evil things, well, that's the devil's business. And that's Eve's line, do you notice? It was the serpent who deceived me. But the fact is, the Bible refuses to make the Satan equal with God. The serpent is a creature originally pronounced good. Whatever the brothers intended... God intended something more. So it wasn't a kind of tit-for-tat, trading blows like two heavyweights. God's intention was in and through the same actions. 
So we don't get an explanation of how human responsibility, that's you intended harm, and divine sovereignty, but God intended for good, relate. You can't easily explain, but this is, I think, where the important point comes. When in my family, if you're going to divide up a pizza, the more I have, the less someone else has. That's a kind of common kind of view. It's a zero-sum game. Yes? So the more someone has, the less someone else has. Often people think of this notion of divine sovereignty and human responsibility as a zero-sum game. So the more sovereign God is, the less responsible humanity is. The more one end or the other. But the extraordinary thing about the Bible is that it's never balanced like that. That it's not trying to find a compromised position in the middle. The truth is found at both ends. Same with Jesus' divinity and humanity. He's not he's fully divine and fully human. You don't somehow say, the more human he is, the less divine he is. It's the wrong kind of way of thinking about it. It's exactly the same with this. Don't go with balance. Don't go with compromise. It's both ends is what you need to have. Fully responsible and fully sovereign. And I actually think that's what we believe. So my third point, we're going to be shorter on these last three. So we talked about it being uh, biblical. We've thought about it being coherent. The third one is it's accepted. In our own spirituality, I think we believe this to be so. Let me illustrate. We thank God for saving us. It's a mark of his sovereignty. We don't claim credit for it. We don't take pride in the choice that we've made. That would be appalling, wouldn't it? No, we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God made us alive with Christ. We recognize God's sovereignty in that, and yet we still chose and trusted and believed. Or again, we confess our sins. We don't say, ha, God, you made me do this. We say, do you know what? I'm very sorry I did this. So our our piety of every believer, as far as I can see, is consistent with this. We demonstrate we believe it every day. The fourth thing, briefly to note, I say necessary. What was true of Joseph was also, in a bigger way, true of Jesus Christ. Who am I talking about? Through the suffering of one man, descends into the pit, innocent of the crime, vindicated, brings life and deliverance. Could be Joseph. Could be Jesus. Think of Peter in his Pentecost sermon. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked people, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Both those things clearly evident in the cross of Christ, necessary for our salvation. That's the dynamic of God's rescue purposes. So biblical and coherent, accepting our spirituality, 
necessary for salvation. But we're still quite theoretical, aren't we? So the last one I want to think about is reassuring. There are huge puzzles. There's much I don't understand. But there can be immense reassurance and comfort for us. Perhaps think of the alternatives. That God isn't there. That's not very comforting, okay? That God isn't good. That God isn't powerful. Or that we're just puppets. But the truth is, we're never alone in our suffering. Nothing that we experience is outside his ultimate sovereign care. We may not understand it, but we're called to trust it. We're never out of his loving arms. And for that, we can take immense comfort. And so I want to finish, as I started, with just two minutes of an interview with Helen Rosevear. How did she make sense of that, having been beaten and raped? Dr. Rosevear, thank you for joining us today. Um, You went through many traumatic experiences in the 1960s when you were in the Congo. How, if ever, did you come to terms with, with those experiences? I don't think we really thought about coming to terms with them. Uh, It's difficult to explain, but before we ever went to the mission field, I'd really said to God I was willing for anything within his will. I think the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will but yours be done, I wanted that to be true for me. So whatever the Lord allowed to happen, I think we accepted as being his will, even though sometimes it's hard to understand how it could be his will. But then another verse he kept giving us in various different situations, he kept giving us the verse, my grace is sufficient. That even when things were really difficult and there was a beat up, something really harsh, there's the certainty my grace is sufficient. And it was, his grace was always sufficient in each individual day, in each circumstance. And then later, looking back more, the Lord gave a particular attitude, perhaps, of looking at what had occurred. He said, um, can you thank me? And initially, of course, I said, no way. But then when you looked at it and thought, I'm not thanking him for the evil. You only thank God for the good things he gives. He said, can you thank me for trusting you? And that was quite a revolutionary thought to me, that I'd always thought of me trusting him, but not of him trusting me. He said, can you thank me for trusting you with this experience, even if I never tell you why? And that brought its own peace. As soon as one said, thank you, I don't know what you're doing, Lord, I don't know why you're allowing this, but if it's part of your purposes, thank you for trusting me. Immediately, he poured in his peace, and there was an acceptance that wasn't difficult 